recording. Welcome to Planetary Health First, Mars Next. It is going to be an amazing journey today. Hope you're ready for liftoff. We are live now. Well, welcome to Planetary Health First, Mars Next. I am Michael. I'm the founder or host of this uh, show. And yes, we are not on Mars, maybe one day, but that's a whole nother topic. But yes, there should be health equity in Mars too. Today, we have an amazing special guest. We're going to be just leading. Actually, I'm going to be listening, asking. She will be leading everything on health equity and is health equity and how it is achievable. And yes, she would have been Dr. King if she would have finished her PhD sooner, but she fell in love. So that's a good thing. Uh, love is great. Uh, Dr. Chelsea King, author, and that's a that's a doctor as PhD because she worked really hard in um, getting her PhD, and she's deserved that title. So tell me a little bit about her. Let, I'll do it real quick, and then you share a little more about yourself. But Dr. Chelsea King currently is serving as the chairwoman of the board of healthcare for the homeless, and that's something we're going to get into about in our conversation today. She also is the VP of Population and Digital Health at Get Well, which we're going to learn a little more about. I guess that's a federally qualified healthcare center. All right. well, well, anyway, we'll talk more about that soon. Previously, she was an adjunct professor, adjunct at Dexler, Drexler, excuse me, public health. Uh, she worked at Dr. First in Avalon, UHC, Cigna, few names you've probably never heard. So she might just know a little bit about healthcare to be dangerous, we would think. Anyway, share a little more about yourself. Yeah, so uh, again, hey everybody, I am Dr. Chelsea King-Arthur, um, born and raised in the Midwest, now uh, an East Coast transplant. Uh, I am a graduate of the illustrious National Treasure Morgan State University two times, both undergraduate as well as my uh, doctoral degree. Uh, I am the proud mother of a nearly two-year-old, a fantastic husband, an amazing dog named Hunter, who we love and adore. Um, really atypical upbringing. We grew up in a family that is Midwestern based uh, family. Dad was a preacher, grandfather was a preacher, but we grew up extremely um, under-resourced. And so use that background to really kind of propel me to where I am today and really uh, hone my focus on making uh, healthcare achievable for under folks health equity, a thing that organizations can really push for and try to obtain because folks who are from under-resourced communities, um, it, they really deserve as much quality and access to care as other individuals. And uh, I'm super excited to be here to chat today. And please disregard any sound you hear. We are live and Chelsea was saying, hey, you know, I have to have work done today. Are you sure you don't want to post? I said, this is health care equity. This is health equity live. So, you know, I said I have a dog every once in a while that comes in and however. So don't worry about that. Um, and uh, anyway, Chelsea, what is health equity? Tell us what it is. Let's just have that as a starting point. Yeah. Yeah, so health equity really is about ensuring that individuals are given the building blocks they need to receive equitable care. So I think we think about, um, you know, what's equality? So that's everybody getting the same thing. But equity is giving individuals who are under-resourced the resources that they need to have the same starting place uh, as those who are well-resourced. And so it's not about ensuring that everybody gets the exact same thing for health equity to truly work. It does mean that some segments of our population who are under-resourced are going to be getting a little bit more, but they need that a little bit more, that a little extra support to get them to the same starting place as others. So it's really about smarter care, really, like understanding your population and your people. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is absolutely understanding your population, understanding the people, and then giving them the resources once you have that understanding. So if you're dealing with a community that might have various language needs and you're talking to them about healthcare, how do you make that equitable? You speak to them in the language that they understand. 
if you're talking to individuals who might read at certain levels, um, or whether you know that or not, you're, you're starting at a lower reading level so that everybody can participate in the healthcare that's being there. So it's understanding the population that you're serving, that you're interacting with, uh, and then meeting their needs and giving them what they need so that they can achieve good healthcare outcomes. So why is this important? Why is healthcare equity important regardless, irregardless, regardless of the cost? I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, it, it's because it is how we ultimately save, right? So the goal is to, if we're really being honest about it, you know, I've worked for some of the largest health plans in the country, enjoyed my time there. I've worked for uh, lots of for-profit organizations and business is business and folks are in business to make money and that's totally fine. Um, but if we are able to actually achieve health equity and give folks the, the resources that they need, to support them through their healthcare journey. In the end, everyone wins. They're getting the information, their outcomes improve, outcomes uh, actually impact bottom line. And so organizations win uh, once they address health equity. Sometimes addressing health equity is not a free, or, or is not a, it's not a budgeted thing. It might not be something that immediately equates to growth of the bottom line, but it is something that over time improves the outcomes and health of the individuals with whom you're interacting and thus eventually does improve bottom line and improve the overall healthcare system. If we have fewer people in the system who are sick, then we have the ability to take care of those who are sick in a very meaningful way. So how do we help to improve the overall health of individuals? We start by understanding who they are and addressing those needs. And sometimes we got to shell out a little cash to do that, but we'll probably make a little bit more on the backside. You know, I've asked a lot of, uh, you know, over this year, uh, we're finishing up, had a, a lot of good guests. Health equity has been a lot of um, topics, talking points, and there is a ton of ROI. It just seems that, um, you know, just for, for instance, a population of diabetes addressing, you know, there was, you know, I don't, I, I know it, to me, it seems more that it's the, the mindset, like there, there is so many areas where there is really strong ROI, but it just seems like what stakeholder group and how they're set up, you know, but if, but if it was done in a perfect world, it seems like the ROI to manage a diabetic population, it's just our sick care model, just there's too much perverse incentive that seems that there's lack of alignment. Would you agree or not? I don't mean to be scared. You know, no, you know, I think that there is ROI there. I, I think that the data on providing and addressing health equity, addressing social needs, the data is still somewhat new. There are, do not get me wrong, there are pockets of the healthcare continuum who have been excelling at this for a very long time and have some data there to, to prove it. But some of that large scale data that I think many or many organizations probably look for in order to bolster their, okay, now I'm willing to spend on this or now I'm willing to do it, might not be there. And while organizations are still struggling with margins, it's hard to say, okay, cool, I'm gonna hire more folks who speak more languages, or I'm going to hire more interpreters, or I'm gonna do a little bit more as it relates to getting my patients to trans getting my patients' transportation to get to appointments. Um, when they're still just trying to recover from the shell shock that was the pandemic, right? The healthcare industry, while it was a pandemic, payers, providers were hit really hard during that time. Hospitals, their margins, I mean every day in Becker's. <laughs> I, had a, I had a colleague say, sometimes when you open Becker's, Becker's is a sad place to read. <laughs> and it is because there's so much loss going on from a financial standpoint that it might seem like addressing transportation, addressing food might not look like a priority. But when you do, Michael, you're right. The ROI is there. And it, it it's working in small pockets. We see it in small pockets. If we find a way to scale it um, and really, I, my personal belief, if we get the federal dollars behind it mm -hmm. uh, to really be able to scale it, then we'll have more organizations who can easily buy into it so that we can address health equity, we can address social needs in large scale. I think they're starting to figure out, like, let's at least get the data from a federal standpoint by CMS changing some of their social determinant screening rules. 
they're trying to get that baseline so that they can say, all right, this makes sense. But they've done studies where they show that, you know, CMMI did a study where they were talking about, I think they, they worked with about a million Medicare um, beneficiaries, tons of need, need way outpaced what CBOs could do. So we're, they're starting to see the data. I think the ROI is there. Folks understand it. Now it's about how do you recognize it? How do, how do you get reimbursed for it properly? Um, and then going forward from there. It seems like the stories I've heard is more like the integrated networks that are able to do like a diabetes focus or a, whatever one or some sort of specific user mm -hmm. case. So do you see any pockets of that? Because it seems like it's a great opportunity for bringing more awareness for organizations across the United States to, and I guess that's the other issue you're talking about is the scalability. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, because it, it, you're right. It's happening in pockets, right? You see folks who are doing it with their diabetic, with their chronically ill patients. They might be picking those with cardiovascular diseases, uh, those who are diabetic. Um, maybe they're focusing on a population that's just a part of their ACO. Um, they're doing it in pockets, but those pockets, while that is admirable, very good work to start with those populations, the data shows that there's enough need across. Uh, there's, a, there's enough folks who are kind of being left out of the system uh, who need equitable approaches to their healthcare that it would, if you could actually scale it, it would make a big difference in overall outcomes and ROI. But you do need some type of, you're gonna eventually need some financial backing in order to be able to do that work. Uh, but yeah, I, I agree. I think right now you see it in small pockets, you see it strongly tied to chronic diseases. Um, I think you see a little bit in Medicaid populations, a lot in Medicaid populations. Again, you're talking about clearly under-resourced individuals, um, but there are other places in which we've got to start addressing it wholesale. We've got to figure out how to scale it so we can make a larger impact. I had a guest on, two guests yesterday, the other day, let's just say, because we're recorded, so don't want to say <laughs> the exact, you know, when we release. But one of the studies that they found was increase spike of uh, ED visits with children, pediatrics, asthma. And guess what they found when parsing through the data? Well, a lot of these have different caregivers and they don't have two inhalers. The inhaler at one house isn't there, the other. So they just redesigned the plan. So it just seems like a lot of this is get the data, share the data and I mean, I guess it's a lot hard, you know, that aha is just not it's enough. Not, it's not harder. I, we choose, okay. I, I think as a system, we choose to make it harder. There are so many places where healthcare related data is collected. Mm -hmm. What we, what we experience is that's my data. I own that data. Mm -hmm. How much you want to see this data? <laughs> Versus saying, and I think ONC has tried, it, you know, ONC is pushing on this, CMS is pushing on this. Sharing the data will make a world of difference. Sharing the data not only empowers um, a, a clinician, but it will also empower a payer. It will also empower an individual. It will also empower an FQHC, right? There's so many people who can be empowered as they, so many organizations that can be empowered in their interactions with individuals. There's so much learning in that data, but we are so, we are so, very territorial about our data in the healthcare space. And I love to see organizations, I have a dear friend who works at um, a pharmaceutical organization and she is like myself, we were friends before, we had our kids around the same time and we're both really passionate about the maternal health crisis and her organization has pharmaceutical data tied to the maternal health crisis and her push, her singular drive has been, I want this data out there and I want people to be able to get it for next to nothing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there have to be organizations pushing to do just that because mm -hmm. that information sharing it, there's so much more other organizations can learn. Uh, and we just, we've got to let our, 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 our sense of pride and ownership to data, we got to let it go. Mm -hmm. I think it needs to be a collaborative approach because owning the data or who, you know, sharing the data, data, I would call data integrity. I don't know yes. if you've ever, I don't know if you've ever looked at your notes 
by whatever. But I've looked at my physician notes. I'm not that patient. I mean, some of the stuff that's put in in that chart, I don't know who that was. I mean, it's almost, I mean, so data is only as good as input. And I would say, I would say data integrity. I don't know. I just, if there's such a thing, I don't know. I would say like sharing data, but let's, let's get real data. Let's get real with the data. Like that ain't my data, you know, because I looked at it and I was like, I have these conditions. I was like, you know, so I don't know, you know, what is there on that part with the patient collaborative uh, cause that could be a health literacy. I mean, if you're getting people involved in their care, but then, you know, the doctor has 15 minutes to, to type in his note, not to see you cause they don't really see you, but, uh, two minutes, right. Or maybe even less than that. Cause they're not even looking at you, unfortunately. Right. In, in some cases. Right. So I, I agree whole, wholeheartedly as a person who is well versed in healthcare, uh, and clearly reads her charts, her husband's charts, her child's charts. <laughs> There's lots of information in there. But if I, if you weren't as well versed in healthcare as I am, um, you, you might not actually know what you're looking at. Um, and it might be hard to refute some of the things that are there or to say, hey, I want to go back and I want this timestamp to a date when this was actually relevant versus like this, you know, proliferating through my chart for <laughs> from infinity to beyond when it's no longer the case. So, you know, I think there, there are some questions around that. Um, but I think that goes back to equity, right? So if we're making pushes for individuals to have access to their medical records and their medical data, um, portals for individuals to have that access, is that information clearly understandable? Are we talking in a way that if I have access to that information, I know exactly what's in it? I understand the medical notes there, that our physicians and, and clinician teams are trained on how to do notes. But if you don't know what you're looking at, reading those medical notes is it, it's gobbledygook. You don't actually know what it definitely means. Mm-hmm. Um, so how are we pushing for equity, even in those instances where it might not be meant for myself, for Chelsea or for Michael, but in the end, if I if we have access to it, then we should be able to clearly understand it. So health equity will run deep. And for us to get this right, there are various touch points that are patient facing, consumer facing, and sometimes not that end up being consumer facing that we need to address. Yeah, well put. So how does mental and behavioral health care impact equity? Massively. So if you, I think the Surgeon General released his report on youth mental health um, earlier this year. So I think we can all look and see that what we, what we even experience every day as individuals coming out of the pandemic is that people are just a little bit more stressed. There's a little bit more going on Um, with, with global events. There's just a little bit more going on and all of that takes a toll. We have created a system here in, in the U.S. where we there really is strong stigma tied to to mental health care, not just for adults, but for children. And if we are putting that on our children now, what what happens to them when they become the adults? Right. What happens to the system, to the country, to, to health care delivery when they become adults? And so I, I think it's really about understanding that. There are stressors in people's lives. There are stressors in children's lives. Um, anxiety and depression run. They, they, it is there. It is something that happens. And so understanding that that has a cumulative impact on someone's health um, is really important. Understanding what that means to their ability to access health, um, access health care is really important. Um, their, their drive and, and ability to, to say, all right, I'm going to get health care. I, I am super excited that one of the things I get to do in my day job is work for an organization that allows us to create programs to address um, health equity issues. And one of the ones that we're super excited about that works, that's being deployed in um, a school system in Madison County, Mississippi, is related to just helping children navigate their mental and behavioral health, giving them a program that's based on the science of hope to talk through, you know, how do you just find a little bit of hope today to get you through? 
and then let's find a little bit of hope tomorrow. And if we know, you know, the state of Mississippi, my dad was born and raised there. Uh, I've spent some time there occasionally with family. You know, they, they there's, there's lots of struggles from a state standpoint. Those families and, and kids have a lot of stuff going on. They're, they are under-resourced. So understanding what that means to them in various ways is really important and it has a big play in equity. If I cannot motivate myself to move forward, if I can't have, if I don't have the resources I need to express myself, to learn coping skills, to understand and get content that might help me find a path forward, if I can't do that on a day-to-day basis for, for regular things, um, what does that mean for me in the scale of going to a PCP appointment, going to a pediatrician appointment, caring about the fact that I need to eat well? It, mm-hmm. We've got to start with being able to address people's basic needs, and a basic need is mental and behavioral health. I think you said it so well, and when, when you were talking, I was thinking about my wife. She's a teacher. She teaches ninth through 12th grade. And the emotional burden that these kids have, the lack at school, you know, our healthcare system's failing. We know that, but schools are failing. And so the curriculum, the, it, you know, it's just she has this burden. Um, how does she navigate wisely, empathetically, using her own EQ to try to sense each and every one of those emerging adults, not adults. I don't even know if adults are adults now until 28. I don't know. But she's not teaching them Spanish. She is. She's trying to teach them everything you were talking about, coping skills, what their purpose is. And there's like 10% that get it. They're like already on there, but there's like probably, and this is a decent school district, but so I, I think, um, I, I get it. And I don't know why I was talking so much about it. I just see her challenge is what I think there's, it's applicable, um, because it is part of our system. But, uh, the thing that I would love to see if we really get to telehealth, if we really get to digital health, if we really get to healthcare, if we really get to mental health and behavioral health, it's no longer a word. I mean, I hate to say it, but in the end, if you don't have physical health, if you don't have motivation, behavioral health, mental health, you don't have it. And it's all part of like, how can you separate the endocrines, your hormones, your mental? And, you know, so I think, I mean, that's my goal. And, and that's me at Planetary Health First, Mars Next. I mean, really, in the end, you know, when we're really trying to, you know, thrive as a human being, all of these are connected. I mean, yeah, it's just health. It's just me. It's just Michael. It's just your wife. It's just this kids in that school, right? It is just us as a person. And there's so many factors that are tied to us as a person. There are so many systems and things about us that are tied to us as a person. And if we just distill it down to that and understand that it's it's holistic. It goes mm-hmm. and I, I hate the cliche term in healthcare, the one thing we are really good at is creating buzzwords. And then hammering them into the ground so that no one cares about them anymore. But one of the one of the terminologies that existed probably five or six years ago that is still super important, and we've made our way back to it, but we're calling it something else, is whole person care. We're whole person care. Now we're focusing on now we're calling it health equity, but it's still whole person care. How do I care about the all of what's going on with Michael, all what's going on with Chelsea. That's the secret sauce. And in order to do that, you got to think about equity. You got to think about mental and behavioral health. You, you've got to think about nutrition. You've got to think about. Um, Can you pay your utility? Can you pay your utility yeah, bill? I was going to say social needs. You've got to think about the environment, the built environment that an individual resides in. It's everything. It is holistic. Uh, and so, you know, we, 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 as a healthcare industry, we ran that one into the ground. So we resurface it with something new and I recall it in health equity and social, you know, social determinants of health. It's still the same. It's, it, it is what we're after. It is the whole person care. And eventually we'll understand that we cannot bifurcate care teams by different disciplines. We, we cannot 
administer health insurance <laughs> in different ways for different things, it, it should be as easy to see a therapist as it is to go see a PCP. It should be as easy to um, engage with a nutritionist or a dietitian as it is to go to a specialist. Mm -hmm. it, it, and it should just be easy. It should just be something someone can do. Um, and so we, we've got to work on access issues. We've mm -hmm. got to work on, uh, I think, you know, earlier we stated that that's an equity thing too, right? Like it's, I, I, as a black female <laughs> uh, of a certain age who is uh, a mom, you know, for me, it's, I don't want to fall victim to those categorizations. So give me access to everything that I can get access to so that I don't fall victim. But no, that's not the way things are covered. So I'm paying for my own nutritionist. <laughs> I'm, I'm working on paying for my own trainer. I'm, I'm doing my yeah. own thing, right? Because I've got to, I have a family that has a, history of high blood pressure and diabetes. I don't want that for me. I don't want that for my son. Um, but if you're talking whole person, the healthcare system would be working to ensure that those things do not become a part of my story as well. Mm -hmm. I loved how you said that about your own journey, about your nutrition, you know, your trainer. And, and really to me, I think that's, that's the 167 days or hours, excuse me, outside of the clinic or what, or, or, you know, the, Actually, more than that, because let's it just depends on kind of where you're at. It might be only six every six months or once a year you see a doctor, yeah. you know, and yep. so really um, that should be where we're going. But we're just not. We're still sick care. You got to like the Japanese, the Asians, you know, they pay the clinician or, or their wellness person when they're well, not when they're sick. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's uh, yeah. so I, I loved how you put in your experience because I, I, I'm doing the same thing. I'm working on all those all those things, trying to, you know, yoga's is my I've had really bad back issues. And I'm telling you, the doctors the didn't the doctor didn't help. The x-ray didn't help. And 50, the, the data is really there. And I say this probably almost every fifth show, but 50% of all lower back surgeries are useless to, to alleviate back pain. And it's mainly through musculoskeletal, you know, yoga, stretching, core training, exercise, yes. how you sit functional, in a chair. Functional yeah. physical therapy. Yeah. <laughs> and so it wasn't until I went to the physical therapist for like 10 minutes that he's like, dude, this is what you need to do. He diagnosed, he's strain or whatnot. And the reality is, yes, I have a little bit of arthritis because I'm closer to 50 than whatever. I don't want to, you know, let's not get on age, but <laughs> um, talk about it. <laughs> but, but I met this gentleman and he's like, dude, you need to get this. I was like, what are you talking about? He has had multiple surgeries and it was his psoas. It's just a mold. It's just, it's a, a mold that just really allows me a plastic mold that you can get for $13 on Amazon because he had his own healthcare journey and it really works. And it so it's this compression. I don't know what's going on, but it allows me, <laughs> you know, the, some of these fitness people swear by it too. It's like the psoas right, but I spent yeah. rather than 80, I spent 12 and that's been instrumental to helping my muscles and all that alignment. So anyway, I mean, that's healthcare, but it's not that's in healthcare. our healthcare. It's not in our system. That is not healthcare. I think, I think we have some organizations um, that are trying to make that part of healthcare, trying to make that part of what they do. I am super excited as uh, so the FQHC that I serve as a volunteer for uh, healthcare for the homeless. We integrate yoga classes. We integrate, um, painting and sculpturing classes as part of the healthcare that we deliver um, because we know that it's whole person and there's other ways in which you can improve health other than medication or, um, or surgeries. And so mm -hmm. it's important to kind of deploy other tactics uh, and to educate folks on those other tactics. But I a hundred percent agree, right? Like I, I feel better <laughs> when I can move my body, work with a physical therapist, um, eat well and, and move forward. We we are lucky, right? Because mm -hmm. we are resourced enough to be able yeah. to do that. But for individuals who don't have access to those resources, when we're giving them basically sick care or, or mm -hmm. health insurance to cover things, how do we expand so that we can try to keep them well? How do we mm -hmm. do more prevention instead of more reactionary medicine? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I just I just feel that um, also there's been so much power by the 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 powering the power bodies, if you would, to boohoo these sort of things we're talking about. To de oh for sure, <laughs> and, and then the like like quackery with I mean I don't you know chiropractor quackery you know it's and I've heard these come out of physicians. I mean yeah it's so, yeah. So I think I mean, it's, I mean it's wild to think. So in the birthing community, where we know black birthing persons have much worse mm -hmm. rates than mm -hmm. anyone else. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter if you're an educated and well-resourced mm -hmm. black birthing person, or if you are under-resourced black birthing persons, you are birthing person, you are still more likely to mm -hmm. suffer um, maternal mortality than a white birthing person. We know this. Mm -hmm. Why aren't doulas a thing that are more readily covered mm -hmm. where you're working with someone who is outside of the hospital system where data shows the data shows that birthing persons who engage with doulas come in more prepared. They come in more educated. They are they they are physically more prepared, uh, and so that results in better birthing outcomes. Um, they have more support when they go home because those doulas are there to also support them mm -hmm. postpartum. Why isn't this a part of it? Right, like mm -hmm. this should just be a part of doula services are covered as part of your your care, right? Like as part of your insurance. No way, you're paying for a doula out of pocket. And while there are phenomenal programs in many urban areas and rural areas where there are volunteer doulas or very low cost doulas, um, a doula is expensive. I, mm -hmm. I mean, they mm -hmm. are. They are $1,400 to $2,200 for a doula. Mm -hmm. If you are seeking a doula to help you postpartum and maybe some overnight support, you are talking three or four grand. <laughs> mm -hmm. Really expensive. Yeah. Um, so, but this should be a part of the care. If we are mm -hmm. serious about bending the curve on on maternal health outcomes, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we've got to offer these birthing persons more, and that's got to yeah. be part of healthcare. And that is not a doula is not quackery. Yeah. <laughs> a doula True. is a support system, and we mm -hmm. all we all deserve a support system. Chelsea, I really thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, that's important. So social determinants of health is all the rage, right? Yeah, they are. So what do, do we need to cover that? I feel like we've been talking about that this whole time, but I know we, is there anything else we want to add? You know, I think the one thing I would say is um, I applaud the regulatory bodies for putting um, measures and things in place to screen for social determinants. Uh, it's a little disappointing that we don't have that resource navigation as a part of it um, in all cases. But if we're going to be asking individuals about their their social needs, it is it behooves us to then go out and provide them resources tied to those to those needs, um, and then ensuring that we're asking everyone. Right, everyone deserves to have that question asked, um, and more than just an inpatient stay. They need to be asked that question a few times throughout the year because people's needs change. Um, but if we're going to ask those questions, then we've got to provide resource navigation to ensure that those patients are getting resources from community organizations or from the hospital systems or from their payers that support addressing those needs. And so I think We've seen some regulatory steps towards at least the screening part. I'm hopeful that we'll see some greater strides towards resource navigation, but that we also, in doing that, find ways to support those community-based organizations. Mm -hmm. They are strapped. They, mm -hmm. the, the, the needs still outpace the resources. What we experienced during the pandemic shined a light on things and it has not died down. Um, and so the need is still there. And so we've got to find ways federally um, at, at the state level through foundations to really support those community-based organizations in addressing people's social needs. It's so sad. Also don't running into the ground, the healthcare community, don't run social determinants into the ground. They're real, they've never, they've always been here. People have needs, they have social determinants. Don't make it a buzzword, y'all. Don't do it. <laughs> so you're almost saying if you talk about something so much, you can like make it not exist. Is that what it is? Yes. 
it's almost it's almost what happens. If you think about the trends and things we talked about in healthcare, interoperability, talked about it for years so much years. it doesn't mean anything anymore. Now, now it means any, it means nothing. Whole person care talked about it so much it means nothing. SDH, wow. be careful, be careful. And you're not one of those conspiratorial theorists, are you? I'm not. I'm not. Okay. No. The only conspiracy that I truly believe in is that there is not enough coffee and there are not <laughs> enough actual cups to keep your coffee warm throughout right. the day. And so or that's if, the only conspiracy I believe in. <laughs> yeah. You, or if you just got to get off the podcast soon enough, if this guy just, just lets you off so you can heat up your coffee. And what is your no, coffee, no. Chelsea? We're good. We're good. I'm still drinking right. my I, – I right. drink my coffee from a, a local grocery store. Uh, they roast their own beans. It is nowhere mm. near my house. It is an actual adventure to go buy coffee every time we buy it. Uh, but it's well worth it. And it's supporting small business and local. Awesome. So I'll make it happen. Do you have a certain, <laughs> is it a certain flavor? Are you, is it dark? Is it medium? I, I... It's medium. It's a medium roast. Mm -hmm. uh, and it we, we tried, there was a point in time where we tried dark roast for a while. Mm -hmm. And uh, my husband and I, at that time he was my boyfriend and we were like we can't we can't do this <laughs> well that you know there's a lot of studies that show with compatibility and it's not always the things you think it's more of this of value alignment so just because you like this and that so i would say the fact that you guys have this alignment in this preference of coffee shows that you will be sustained in the we long run sustained we will. The other thing that we both do, which is quite fun to watch, is that uh, um, in the evenings, he might be downstairs and I might be on the main level. And we will be watching the exact same thing. We wow. don't plan to watch the exact same thing, but we'll be watching the exact same thing. And one of us will run up or down and say, did you just see? And we're always like, yeah, I just saw it. And we're like, maybe we could just, no, we're good. We're watching in separate rooms and we are going to talk about it. <laughs> So there's alignment. We, we never decide yeah. we're going to watch the same thing, but we are oftentimes watching the same thing. So again, compatibility, it's there. <laughs> no, I love that. I, I find that might not be the same with the things my wife and I watch, but we then figure <laughs> out the common stuff. So there there's different things, but I love that. I would like an AI device that takes all the information of, of the people in your house and and allow you to have a, a, a breakdown. So let's get to know each other since we don't sit at the table every night. I mean, I think that would be good because I connected with my daughter yesterday. I was watching Netflix and I was like, I why is it that I've never heard of this Nina Simone? My daughter is this amazing, like she loves to sing trying to get her to do the guitar. She's got a beautiful voice. My wife is, her first language is Spanish. She was born in the States, lived in Mexico for 10 years. And so my daughter sings better in Spanish, though she's not fluent. She loves mariachi. So she loves, and so what I found fascinating is she loves all these great rich artists from all over the, from the thirties, twenties to, different yeah. backgrounds and everything. And she's like, oh yeah, dad, she's cool. I like her. She's on my, I was like, how does she know song? this? Yeah. Strange Fruit. It's a wonderful song. And the story behind her singing Strange Fruit. Well, uh, yeah. But I mean, just her whole, like her whole quality as an yeah. artist. Her voice was, yeah. Just, yeah. I mean, it's true. I, I Classically trained in, in Bach. I mean, yeah. like the classically trained and, and yet, I mean, just her music is like, I'm like, why haven't I heard of her? She's just a virtuoso. Yeah. And I've got to say, uh, in our household, we do love a little bit of mariachi music. Uh, we like to play it in uh, non-traditional ways. So sometimes if we're having a dinner party, instead of playing dinner party music, we like to play mariachi music. All right. I like that. <laughs> and no one in our house speaks Spanish, but we're like, we like mariachi music. <laughs> now, is it going with certain food? Or are you having different no, traditions? No, wow. we will be okay. having beef bourguignon and listening to mari mariachi music. <laughs> and that's that's French, right? That's, that's a French. French. Okay, all right. I'm not very good with languages. So anyway, um, 
I want to highlight before, I mean, this has been great. I feel like you're a friend, Chelsea. The next thing I want to do is we need to have a dinner party. You, you bring Let's your husband. It. Yeah, we'll, we'll have a meetup <laughs> and we have to have other healthcare friends, illuminaries, you know, to, to, to do something. We'll have to have a, a gathering something. I don't know. Planetary yeah, health, I, like bring your own, bring your own meal, like bring your friend and bring your own dish. There you go. Right here. You've heard it. Talk. Let's sit down and talk and figure out how we how we change what's going on. Yeah, I think and learn a little bit from each other, right? Like there's there's yeah. learnings there. We I, don't necessarily I, change everything, but we can learn learn a little bit to influence what we do day in and day out, which is how you start to make the progression of really shifting the system. Just learn a little bit from a friend. I love that. I love that. So you're in for 2024. I'm there. All right, we're gonna have to figure it out because we we kind of have a geography issue, right? I'm in Virginia, Virginia Beach, and you're in Maryland, right? Yes, in Baltimore. We can figure. We can, yeah. Is we that can that figure. Far? It's like four hours. We'll, yeah, yeah. No, exactly. We'll <laughs> figure it out, and we'll get a list. I'll get a list. We'll check it twice. Maybe we'll collaborate. We'll get some more people, um, and we'll have to have a little bit of time. But what I want to do before we finish, because we have a few more minutes, I believe, right? Because you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we yeah. do have just a few more. What I'd like to do is what made me like why my why, why I just sought you is I saw your background and I love what you're doing. And I want to highlight before we leave, you know, the chairwoman of the board, healthcare for the homeless. I think that's really, I, I have, we've really failed as a nation. There should be no homeless. And, and that's a whole nother subject. You know, and, and I'm not trying to be a socialist. I'm a, you know, I am a capitalist. I believe that there needs to be partnership, cooperation. Obviously, if, if capitalism took over, the world would be awful. I mean, you know, full <laughs> outright vulture capitalism, right? I mean, yeah. you know, PE, yeah. PE can be very detrimental to hospitals and all this. And we're seeing this. So like 20% of all, this is a stat, 20% of Everything is owned by PE now in America. It was only less than a few percent at 20 years ago or so. Oh, Maybe wow. my, wow. But, but it's like 20%. That's a yeah. huge data point. So it that's is. taking all of the public market that was more transparent. So there's a lot of different stuff that can happen when PE is doing things that wouldn't be open to the public marketplace if it was a publicly traded fund. So so it's anyway, that's a I'm kind of getting off on a tangent. I don't know why I started bringing that up. But my point is with the homelessness, mm -hmm. you know, like, you know, being and I'm not a capitalist and whatnot. And then also in Europe, you know, they don't have this issue because they provide, you know, I'm not saying we should be taxed, every one of us, but something's gone wrong. And that's all the more reason why we need you you know, leading the charge as the healthcare for the homeless. And I'd love to hear more about that, but also as well, what I think is tandem, what you are is VP population digital health at get well, which is a federally qualified health care, right? No, health care for the homeless is an FQHC. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. Get well, get well is a, is a, actually uh, a PE backed digital healthcare organization. Oh my God. I'm uh, sorry. Golly. No, 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 but no, well, let's talk about it. Cause I think that's okay. fair, right? I, okay. What I would say is, so I have, I have two things to say, which is one, um, funds put in the right place, pushing for the right mission. It is absolutely where we should be headed. Um, when we think about uh, I, my CEO said to me yesterday, and I was like, this is really, I love this. It's, it is commercializing purpose and understanding if you have a purpose driven mission, it's okay to commercialize that. It's okay to find a way to make funds to, to raise revenue off of that. And that's okay. And so every day <laughs> I get to create programs that organizations, providers, payers, um, pharmaceutical organizations engage with where they are trying to promote equity or bring um, individuals back into the fold of their own healthcare and participating, where they're trying to educate them and engage them in a way that they are taking the reins of their healthcare. It is all about engagement, it is all about 
ownership. It's all about cultural and linguistic appropriateness. Um, and so every day I get to do that. And that is mm -hmm. super exciting. Um, and I, I think that that when you put funds behind it and you drive in that type of work, it makes total sense. Yeah. Um, in my, in my not so spare time, I spend my time with healthcare for the homeless, which is an FQHC. And this is an, is a, a nonprofit organization that is delivering healthcare to, um, those who are experiencing homelessness or those who are, um, under-resourced in a, in a mm. serious way. The overlap between the two is shocking. Mm -hmm. you, you're still talking, you're still trying to figure out how to engage people um, and get them to take a part of their healthcare and giving them high quality care. Um, the challenges you see, there's lots of overlap, right? How do we create enough funds to care for these populations? How do we coalesce resources to take care of these populations? Whether that population be um, birthing persons who are who are Medicaid recipients, or they be um, individuals who lack documentation and therefore struggle to get insurance coverage. Mm -hmm. How are you taking care of them? Because to your point, they still need to be cared for. Mm -hmm. It's still the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. It is what we as a basic human need deserve mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and should have met. And so it's about how do we do it and how do we do so in a way where folks really feel like they are a part of their care? How do we make it feel seamless to them? How do you, you know, even if I am an under-resourced individual, a homeless individual or an individual experiencing homelessness, if I need to see a doctor, seeing a doctor, but then if I have to be referred to someone else, sharing my information across so I don't have to sit down and tell you my story again. Mm -hmm. I was a kid. Fill out the I, chart, right? Here's the yeah, chart, the yeah, clipboard. Yeah, exactly. I was a kid who experienced homelessness. We were, I can vividly remember being evicted at least a few times as a kid. Mm. I don't want to tell you my story every mm. time I have to get care. I don't mm. want to tell you, hey, Chelsea, what's your address? I don't know. Or mm. Mm, it's my grandma's house right now, mm -hmm. right? Like, how do, we, how do we share that information? How do we, how do we help tell our story mm -hmm. and get our care? But more importantly, where it's not needed, do we, do we need to continuously have to expose people to this information? But mm -hmm. then once we expose that information, once I share it, what are you doing about it? Mm -hmm. And then what are you ensuring that the next person I interact with in the healthcare delivery mm -hmm. system is also doing something about it? Mm -hmm. That's one of the things I'm really proud of at Healthcare for the Homeless. We partner with health systems. We have great partners in, uh, with an organization that's right, right near us. We're sharing information. I don't mm -hmm. have to tell my story every single time. They come to me and they and they come to the patients. They talk to them. What I do every day is working to ensure that that there's continuity continuity there, so someone knows what that person is going through. So you'd be shocked. Um, mm -hmm. We're not our our health system. Our our individualism is not as individual. Uh, mm -hmm. There there are more people on the fringe, uh, right mm -hmm. on the edge of mm -hmm. either being a patient at the FQHC or being where they are now. And mm -hmm. we've got to bridge it and we've got to give seamless care, share that data across, engage those individuals, because no matter where you are, you deserve the same level of treatment. You know, I just hearing what you're saying, I just hope that we can have more time together and sharing more stories uh, with what you're doing. Obviously being respectful of those that you serve, their their privacy and all that. But I feel like there's so much getting real. I mean, healthcare is real and it's about real people, individuals' lives, like how you've shared. I just feel like there's so much to what you're doing. And I hope in 2024, when we have you on again, we can, and then maybe if there's also, uh, we'll be posting this, I'll try to get it out. I want to get it out before 2024. I mean, I, I, I can do it. I don't know, I, you know, but what I'd like to do is there's some resources, information. I'll do it as also a newsletter. Please think about that. Uh, share that with me. I'd love to get some more information about what you're doing at Get Well yeah. and then your, your FQCH as well. 
Um, cause, and I thank you for keeping me corrected with, with my PE, whatever there's good and bad of everything. Right. It's I would not bad and everything. like when, when you said that, I was like, God, I'm sounding bad, but you know, anyway, um, I would not want the U S post office managing my healthcare. Let's just say that. <laughs> uh, I mean, I would have to agree <laughs> because I'm telling you the words out that your letters aren't getting to people now. So many people like the check is in the mail is like, no, that ain't going to work. Not, that's not trusted. Anymore. Yeah. We're going to need your ACH. Could you, could, you know? could you sell me please? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, this has been awesome. Love it. Fantastic. I, I, Michael, it's been great talking to you. You are like seriously a, a, a force to be reckoned with to, and oh, I just you. love, are you, are you working on a book? What are you, what is the future in the <laughs> next few years? Uh, that's a really good question. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think uh, I'd like to really stay engaged in doing what I'm doing right now and expanding that outreach to other folks um, really focused on maternal health equity um, and social determinants and youth mental health in my in my current role and really want to expand that. Um, I've considered working on some some publications, uh, getting a few things published with with some friends and colleagues. I think that's probably in the in probably in the future for 2024. Um, and just really just continuing to talk and collaborate with with organizations and other people in healthcare to figure out how we tackle some of these things that are really important. So um, if anybody wants to chat, I'm happy to chat and happy to mm -hmm. brain share and collaborate because I think it's just so important for us to figure out a path forward on some of these things. But I also see someone as a chief health equity officer at some point. Do you have those sort of aspirationals? Am I the only one crazy enough to say that? I just see that <laughs> you're a natural born leader and I'd love to see an organization so lucky to have you to move an, an, a massive needle that needs to be moved. <laughs> that is very kind of you. I, as I, um, as, as my faith would have me say, I will be put exactly where I need to put to help the people that I'm supposed to help. And you so, sound like a politician. As as, <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I mean, I was once uh, the chair of my, the, the president of my community association. So, you know, <laughs> Those are the most competitive. It's not the man. I'll tell you, you don't mess with the association boards, man. They have more power. They have more power than the president. So anyway, um, anyway, we are going to anything on the last parting words, Chelsea, before we call it a day. Uh, to those who are out there working on healthcare um, and doing meaningful, meaningful work. Thank you for what you do. Uh, stay the course. Um, we'll, we'll find a path forward and we will be able to address so much more. It's coming. We'll be there. And to the frontline workers, especially the nurses, I, I know it's hard out there. You are appreciated. We thank you for what you do. And that's it. <laughs> awesome. Until next time. Friends, it has been a great journey today on Planetary Health First, Mars Next. Follow us for more on Planetary Health First, Mars Next. Until next time, peace be with you.